Now, I'm going to let you in on a little secret as a preacher. At the beginning of our sermons, we try to say something to get your attention, to kind of hook you in from the start. So for those of you this morning who are pretty familiar with the Bible, you'll understand that my hook this morning is simply Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon. I'm just going to drop the mic and go home, okay, and be done with it. (laughs) Now, if you're not as familiar with the Bible, you're asking, what is he talking about? Okay, the Song of Songs or the Song of Solomon is a book that is about an intimate relationship, an intimate sexual relationship between a husband and wife. And it's part of God's inspired scripture. So let me just remind you again, this is part of God's inspired scripture, and it is about the intimacy and the sexual relationship between a husband and a wife. Now, throughout church history, um, there are several extremes, in my opinion, that theologians and pastors have taken when dealing with this book. On the one extreme, it's the allegorizing of all of it. Now, that's important that I said all of it, all right? So they allegorize all of it. In this perspective, if all the Bible is pointing us to Christ, which we believe, then the groom is Christ in this book, and the bride is the church. And we see a picture of the intimate care and relationship that Christ has with his bride, the church. And it also seemed to have been a reaction, that that extreme part that all of it is allegorized, seemed to be a reaction to the awkwardness of a book of the Bible dealing with sex in a way that seemed on the surface to be a little bit more explicit. So one of the things that happened, theologians and pastors in the past looked at it and said, man, this is hard to kind of comprehend that this is in the Bible, so they allegorized all of it. Now, while I believe, and you're going to see as we get to the end, that there are some connections, and there are some connections to Christ and our relationship with Christ, but the whole book and all of its details should not be allegorized. The other extreme is a more modern perspective that seems to run everything that's sexual in the Bible through a, an explicit, a modern or explicit understanding of that. In this approach, we, take to, we try to take everything that's in the Bible and, and this particular book, which is a poem, and everything that we find in poetry and the history of, of, of a sexual nature in the Bible, and we believe we know exactly what it means by using modern innuendo and insinuation. Did you see what I'm getting at? So on the one hand, we allegorize it all. On the other hand, we think we know what it means, and we run it through the filters of our current understanding of sexuality and our own innuendos and insinuations, instead of simply looking at what the book says. Now, both of these extremes seem to be unhelpful. But I want to remind you, and this is kind of a little side note, that any time you hear preaching, including mine, I want you to think carefully and, and critique it and think criti- be a critical thinker. I want you to search the scripture. So when you hear me talking about this today, I want you to search the book and I want you to be convinced by the Holy Spirit and by the scripture itself by what it really means and what it's saying. So anytime you hear preaching, I want you to be a critical thinker. Now, there's a difference between being critical and being a careful and critical thinker, okay? So what I'm calling you to be is not critical, but to be a person who's critically thinking and thinking carefully. And this is one of those books. This is one of those books I invite you to think carefully about and think critically about and go back and study it yourself. It is part of God's word, and it is something that we should look at, and it is something we should wrestle with. And so I think there's a more helpful middle approach that I'm going to take today. I think that the more helpful approach to take in this book is to see it as a book that gives us a beautiful and deeper understanding of intimacy. 
an intimacy that is way greater and way more meaningful than just a sexual intimacy. However, let me be clear, because I don't want to sidestep this. You know, sometimes it's preachers, hard text. You know that there's probably books, uh, passages in the Bible you've never heard preached? You know why? Because if they're hard, preachers try to go around it and not preach from it, all right? So I want to be clear that this is a book that does talk about sexual intimacy. The sexual intimacy between a husband and a wife is clearly part of the Song of Songs. But there is an intimacy that is way greater than all of that. And while the intimate sexual relationship between a husband and wife is something that the Bible talks about and is one of the most intimate of all human relationships, it's not the only thing that we see in the poem. And, that's, and if, if that's all that we see, which is kind of the modern perspective, I think we miss the real beauty of how God has designed us. So that's what I want us to think about is that there is a greater depth of intimacy than just a sexual relationship between a husband and wife. I wasn't going to share this this morning, but sometimes I just stuff impromptu. When my mom passed away, and I know I share often about that, but when my mom passed away, my mom and dad were married for 68 years. I'm going to get a little choked up, but to me this is a picture of the beauty of intimacy that we'll lose if we don't see that in books like Song of Solomon. That day at the grave site, to see my dad weeping over that casket, literally laying over that casket weeping, I said to myself, that, I told my kids, that's 68 years of true love. That's 68 years of real connection. That's 68 years of real intimacy. So I want you to think in those terms when we're talking about this today, that there's something way bigger, well, as important as sexuality is, there's an intimacy that is way bigger than that. And it was beautiful to watch my dad crying over that casket, to be honest. It said a lot to me. Now, the reason this is important, because this does all connect us to an intimacy with Christ. So here's what I'm doing this morning. Here's my definition of intimacy. Intimacy, this is how I'm going to be referring to it in this message. Intimacy in a relationship is a feeling of being close and emotionally connected and supported. It means being able to share a whole range of thoughts, feelings, and experiences that we have as human beings. So that's the definition of intimacy I'm going to be using in this sermon. And I'm going to suggest that the second greatest place this intimacy is experienced is in marriage. And this will include sexual closeness. But this connects us back, and I want you to see how this is all connected through the thread of the Bible. This connects us back to Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3. And you will see how Adam and Eve were together, and how before the fall and sin came into the world, they had a physical intimacy and they were unashamed. There was no shame involved in that intimacy. And so we see that one of the greatest places that we find this kind of closeness is in marriage. But we can also feel these same things, the feeling of closeness, emotional connection, and support from other relationships that have no sexual connection. And that's why I wanted us to be thinking carefully about that part of it today, because there's intimacy, connection, and emotional closeness, and support, and all of those kinds of things can happen in other kinds of relationships as well, like family, like friendship, and like in the body of Christ. There should be a support there should be emotional connection. There should be a feeling of closeness 
This should be a place that we can share the whole range of thoughts and feelings and we do life together and have life experiences together so that there is an intimacy that is in marriage, but there's an intimacy that is in friendship, there's an intimacy that's in family, there's an intimacy that is in the body of Christ. Now, all of that points us then, what I would argue, is to the greatest relationship of intimacy, and that's with, with Jesus Christ, who completely and perfectly knows us. So if you've lost me up to this point, come on back, because this is really important now, because this is where this is going. There is a, a relationship that is of the ultimate kind of intimacy and connection because he's the one who created us. And not only did he create us, and, and I want you to think about this for just a moment because sometimes in, our, in our, the world we live in where we're just running and busy and doing all this stuff, to stop and think that there is a God who sent his son, Jesus Christ, who created us and actually knows us completely. Most of us have a desire to be known by someone. That somebody knows us. Somebody knows what we're about. Well, guess what? There is a, a, a God who knows you completely. Every part of you. And he sent his son, Jesus, who now knows you and knows you so intimately that he created every molecule. All I'm trying to do is get you to think about this closeness. He created every molecule in your body. Every strand of your DNA he created. And he knows every thought that you've ever thought. And he knows every action you've ever done, every success you've ever had, every failure, every attitude, every feeling. There is one who knows you in the most intimate of way, knows you like no one else knows you, knows you even better than you know you. And what's beautiful about this is that while he knows us perfectly, all the good and the bad, he perfectly loves us and he's completely faithful to us. If you think of the husband and wife imagery, that's a beautiful picture. He perfectly loves and he's perfectly faithful. We're unfaithful, but he's perfectly faithful. And now he invites us with all of our sins and fears and imperfections. He invites us to this definition that I'm using of intimacy. He invites us to being close with him. He invites us to connect to him. He invites us to be supported by him. And he shares with us in all of our thoughts and feelings and experiences. He is present with us. If you don't remember anything else today, I hope that you remember that part. He is present with you no matter what it is you're going through right now. No matter what circumstances you're experiencing, what hardship you're experiencing, what depression you're experiencing, what fear, what loss, whatever it is, he is present with you. Completely present. Perfectly present. Even when you might feel like he's far away, he's right there. Okay, now, as a follower of Jesus and those who believe in the Bible and that it's inspired and it's the word of God, we want to have a biblical and Christ understanding of sex, all right? So that's a given. We want to have it and think about it the way God thinks about it and the way God designed it. And the Song of Solomon or the Song of Songs can help us do that as long as we keep it in the proper context of an intimate, committed relationship in the marriage relationship between a husband and wife. Without that, we can't get to the parts in the New Testament in Ephesians chapter 5. Okay? So this is really important. That's the context that we're coming at this from, that the Song of Solomon and the Song of Songs, I'm using both titles because they switch them up depending on what version of the Bible you're looking at. 
it can help us understand this, this intimacy and this connection as long as we keep it in that proper context, that it's a sexual relationship between a husband and wife in marriage. Because only in that context can we then understand Ephesians chapter 5. So I'm jumping forward now, and this is a lot of stuff, and so I'm praying that it's making sense to you, all right? I'm praying that it's understandable, because that's my goal, is to try to help you see how this all works together. Ephesians chapter 5 now, jumping to the New Testament, says this, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now we're seeing this connection, why it's important to see that this is a relationship between a husband and wife, because in the New Testament, we get this imagery now between Christ and the church being like a groom and his bride. And if we don't understand that back here, it won't make any sense. The, the Song of Solomon won't give us the fullness of what it's really all about. So he says, husband, love your wives as Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without a spot or wrinkle or any such thing as she might be holy without blemish. In the same way, husbands love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two become one flesh. Now, this is, this is where this connects to Song of Solomon. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. He's making this important connection that the, the husband and wife um, example is something that should be pointing us to Christ and his love for his bride, the church. And so while this relationship with Christ and his church is clearly not sexual, the union and the intimate nature of the union is like that of marriage. The knowing and the being known, the closeness, the being emotionally connected and supported. The one who has perfect and complete knowledge of you and perfect love towards you is Jesus. That's what I hope you take away today, and that brings you encouragement. The one who has perfect and complete knowledge of you and yet has perfect love for you is Jesus. Now, when I hear perfect and complete knowledge, I get nervous because <laughs> I think there's a lot of things about me that I don't know that I want anybody to know. And guess what? Jesus knows all of it. And Jesus loves all of it. And Jesus died for all of it. So Jesus can know all of it. And then he says, you're still my beloved. And he still loves and cares and is there for me in the midst of all of that. All right. Now to our passage for today. <laughs> all right. Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verses 1 through 17. So I'm going to read the whole thing, and then we're just going to take a few minutes to run through it and pull it all together at the end, I, I hope, in a way that will help you walk away feeling encouraged um, this morning. So this is what it says in chapter 2. I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys, and a lily after brambles, so is my love among the young woman, women. Now, if you had, I, I guess maybe I should try to jump back and forth here, but he starts out with, she starts out with saying, I'm a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. And he says, as a lily among brambles, so is my love among the young women. And then she replies, as an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. 
With great delight I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banquet house, and his banner over me was love. Sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am sick with love. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you stir that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. The voice of my beloved, behold, he comes leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, looking through the lattice. My beloved speaks and says to me, arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. For behold, the winter is past, and the rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth, and the time of singing has come, and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig, the fig tree ripens its figs, and the vines are in blossom. They give forth fragrance. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. O oh, my dove, in the clefts of the rock, and the crannies of the cliff, let me see your face. Let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. Catch the foxes for our... For us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossom. My beloved is mine, and I am his. He grazes among the lilies until the day breeds and the shadows flee. Turn, my beloved, be like a gazelle or a young stag on the cleft of the mountains. Now, what we're seeing there is this great relationship and connection. And we're just going to break it down and help you see some of it and pull it all together at the end. Starts out with, I'm a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. She expresses some comfort and confidence about who she is. What she's saying is, I, I, I'm, I'm yours, and I know I'm yours, and I'm like the rose of Sharon, the lily of the valleys. And she's confident about who she is and her presence and how he views her. It's this beautiful picture of her saying, this is my guy, and, and, and I know who I am, and I know how I stand before him. And then he responds, and again, you've got to remember, this is poetry from a different culture in a different time, uh, think about it as an agricultural culture. And he, his response is, you're like a lily among thorns. So is my love among the young women. Like all the other young women, he's saying, don't compare to you. He affirms her beauty and her character and his commitment to, to just her. I am just about you. You're a beautiful lily. The rest are like brambles, he says, and like thistles. And he's just expressing, and one of the things you have to do in this book is just look for the plain sense of the language. And he's just expressing that, how he sees her. He sees her like a beautiful lily, and she doesn't, she's far above all the other women, and he's committed to only her. And then she responds and talks about the security that she finds from him. As an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. With great delight, I sat in his shadow. I, I, I am protected by him, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He provides. He brought me to his banquet house, and here it is. Many of you have heard this before, and especially if you grew up in the church, you probably even sang some songs like this. And his banner over me was love. What was his commitment to her? What was it all about? His banner over her was love. She's finding peace, security, delight, and rest in his presence. She sits securely in his presence, and he's providing for her. But his greatest provision, do, do you see that here? His greatest provision is his banner of love. What he offers her that he has that is the greatest of all things is that he's committed to her in love. And she has no question about his love for her. 
His love for her is so intense here, it, she's actually overwhelmed. If, there, if this wasn't in the Bible, we might be going like, ah, gag me, <laughs> you know, for I am sick with love. <laughs> she's saying, I'm just, I'm just so sick with love, and he's providing for me. It's this beautiful picture, and I don't mean to laugh, because it's the real world for a while, <laughs> and then real life comes into play. But there is a commitment here where they're both infatuated with each other, Right? But in that, his banner over her is love that has provided her with this peace and security and delight and rest. And that kind of love has made her lovesick. That's all that's really saying in verse 5. I'm sick with love. I'm so in love with this guy. And then he is, he is doing all these things of providing for me and caring for me. And his banner over me is love. And there is a, a, an intimacy there that is beautiful. And then we see how it's moved to a little bit more of a physical connection. He says his, she says, his left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. And then they say together, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the doles, does of the field, that you stir, not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. What they're saying here is simply there is a physical closeness that brings joy and security. We're not having to skirt around that. There is this physical physical closeness, and it brings joy and security. But here's the picture of intimacy that is simply an embrace, a, a closeness and a connection that is intimate. And so one of the things I wanted to do this morning is just take a moment and challenge us with our understanding of closeness and intimacy a little bit. Because what they're saying is that the putting the hand behind the head and an embrace is something that's intimate, and there's a closeness and a connection. And what they're really saying about be careful about stirring up or awakening love until it's ready or pleases is saying that there are levels of connection, of intimacy that mean something. And so we should be trying to figure out what is an appropriate level of intimacy based on the nature of this relationship. So have you ever noticed that in our culture, holding hands means something? It's a pretty simple act of intimacy, just holding a hand. I wasn't going to tell this story, but I, I think I will. So, um, <laughs> Sherry and I have had kind of a, a unique relationship when we first, uh, first started out. Um, we were friends for about a year and a half before we ever dated, and we dated for a year and a half. And so, in that time, it was kind of an up and down, and basically, I like to say I was confused, Okay. <laughs> Yeah, she should be telling this story. <laughs> so we were hanging out one-on-one. -on -one. We were hanging out in groups. We were kind of back and forth. Couldn't define the relationship. Didn't know what we were doing. And I still remember now, I'm just, the point of this story is just to show that a simple act that we might think is a small act of intimacy really means what that intimacy really does mean something and have value. So at one point, after that year and a half, when I was starting to get a little bit more like maybe we were going to be in a dating relationship, at one point, I don't remember where we were, I tried to hold her hand. And she actually <laughs> pulled her hand back and said, you're not holding my hand until you decide what we are, <laughs> okay? <laughs> until you determine, until you explain who we are, until you define the relationship, Right? That was our and I still didn't know what I was doing. But my point is that just simply that small act of intimacy means something, right? I just don't go running around holding other people's hands. 
So when this passage is talking about an embrace, what simply all, all we're trying to say is that there are appropriate kinds of intimacy based on the level of a relationship. You see what I'm saying? And they're saying, don't awaken that. That's the end of verse, verse 7. Don't, don't be stepping over those lines unless th th there's a level of intimacy that's being understood and then what is appropriate. Now, I personally think it's appropriate if people are dating to hold their hands, okay? You can do that. But the, the real point of this is what is the right level of intimacy? What is the right level of touch and connection in relationships? Now, why does that matter? Because we live in a culture. We live in a culture where relationships can move at lightning speed. And they're simply saying in this passage, slow it down a little bit. Slow it down and let things take its course. Let time build those relationships. Does that make sense? Am I being clear? Or you want to stand up and correct me or help me make it clearer? <laughs> I think this, this little section is just saying, be careful with intimacy as well. And let things build. Let relationships develop. Instead of rushing and not being alert and then ending up in places, intimate places, that maybe wasn't God's intention. And if you want the rest of the story, you can ask her. No, don't ask her, all right? <laughs> let, me, let me tell the story. It'll be on Facebook. <laughs> It'll be on Facebook. <laughs> then he goes on to say this in verse 8. She says this. The voice of my beloved, behold, he comes leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a young gazelle or stag. Behold, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows and looking through the lattice. My beloved speaks and says, arise, my love, my beautiful one, come away. For behold, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone, the flowers appear on the earth, and the time of singing has come, and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree ripens, and the vines are blossomed. They give forth fragrance. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away with me. Let's get out of here and go somewhere together. Oh, my dove, in the clefts of the rock and the crannies of the cliff, let me see your face. I want to see you. Let me hear your voice, because it's sweet and your face is lovely. This is simply, she, just, she hears the voice of her beloved coming, and she's glad to hear it. She's excited to hear them, excited to see him. And she envisions his great effort, and this is really important because I'm going to connect this with Christ, all right? She sees his great effort to get to see her. He's bounding over the hills. He's standing outside the wall hoping to get a glimpse of her. He, he's put great effort to get to see her. He was far away on a journey. I couldn't help but think about Princess Bride when I was working on this message, but, and comes a long ways to try to see her and has to go through a lot of things to see her. And he's standing outside just waiting for a glimpse of her. And then he says, come on, let's go away. He invites you to go away with him and spend the day, and she's excited to do it. He wants to see her face. He wants to hear her voice. He wants to be with her and spend time together. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? It's a beautiful picture of love and intimacy. He travels far, diligently, works hard in order to be with her. I mean, that's the way we see it in books and movies all the time. And we're like, oh, I hope he gets there. I hope he beats the deadline before she marries the, you know, the ugly prince or whatever, you know. In the books and the movies, we, we see this, and we long for that, and we see it here in, in the Bible, this great effort that's put forth so that they can be together. 
And she waits, and she's excited to hear his voice and encouraged about that effort that he puts in. And that effort indicates to her something. The, the fact that he's been bounding over the mountains and he's worked hard to get there indicates to her how much he loves her and how much he wants to be with her. And he's worked hard in order to say, come away with me. And then they warn us again, catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyard, for our vineyards are in blossom. This love is growing like a vineyard, and watch out for the things that come in and destroy it. Watch out for all the little things that can sneak in and, and wreck intimacy. Intimacy is a beautiful picture in the Bible, but there's lots of things that can wreck it and destroy it. And then finally, he ends with this, and this is a beautiful picture. They just said, my beloved is mine. They belong to each other. Let me say that again, verse 16. My beloved is mine. Let me say again how I define that. They belong to each other. All right, I got a message for both, of, both sides of the coin here. If you are not married, don't get married until you're ready to belong to someone. It says, my beloved is mine, and I am my beloved's. They belong to each other. That's kind of a heavy thought. <laughs> According to the Bible, when two people get married, they belong to each other. Then no longer can we just do whatever we want to do. We're connected in a certain way. So I just want to challenge you. Don't, don't get married until you're ready to belong to somebody. For those of you who are married... I don't want you to forget, according to 1 Corinthians 7, we no longer belong to ourselves. That's a hard thing. Sherry and I got married a little later in life. I was almost 30. And man, like somebody wanted to know if I was coming home. Somebody wanted to know where I was. And I did that to her too. And we both had to get used to the fact that, hey, we're no longer just ourselves. We belong to one another. That's a beautiful thing, but it's also a challenging thing. And so I just want to remind us that this, this is what this passage says. My beloved is mine. We belong to each other. And so if you're single, when you're ready to do that, then do that. But don't, don't do that unless you're ready to belong to somebody else. And for those of us who are married, we belong to our spouses. I'm just no longer just me doing my own thing. And so since but the beautiful picture here in Song of Solomon here at the very end, since they belong to each other, they don't want to part. See, the rest of the verse, verse there is just talking about, let's stay together. Let's not part. And since they belong to each other, they don't want to part. And here's just another little piece I think that's important. And they shouldn't be torn apart. They belong to each other. They are united as one. And they don't want to part, nor should they be torn apart. All right, I got five minutes left to say, what's the point of all this? What can I send you home with that's really important? And so, like I said already in the message, if you've lost me, come on back. This is the important part, all right? And I feel really passionate about this last couple pieces. I want you to see how all this connects us to our wonderful groom, the one who loves us perfectly, Jesus Christ. So what I want you to take home from this message today is this. First, sex understood and practiced after God's design is good and blessed and beautiful. Okay? I want to be a church, and we want to be a church at Rock Hill that, that states that. I grew up in a church that sex was something you don't talk about. 
Okay? That didn't help us a whole lot. So I want us to be a place that's, that's consistent with the Bible, that understands that sex practiced after God's design is good and blessed and beautiful. Second, intimacy in human relationships is a gift from God. The intimacy between a husband and wife, but the other kinds of intimate relationships is a wonderful gift from God. What a blessing that we can have these kinds of uh, relationships with one another. But ultimately, think about what we just talked about, how she, the, the bride is delighting in her groom and how much she desires her groom and spending time together. Ultimately, God created us to delight in him. Now, where have you heard this before? Declare, display, and delight, right? We are to delight in him as the bride delights in the groom. We are, to use this definition of intimacy, we are to delight in the feeling of being close and emotionally connected and supported by Jesus. We're supposed to, de to, to delight in being able to share a whole range of thoughts and feelings and experiences that we have as human beings with our Creator and with our Savior, Jesus Christ. I can do all of that with Jesus Christ. All of the thoughts and feelings and experiences and the hopes and the dreams, all of that, I'm supposed to be connected with Christ at that level. The perfect, faithful, steadfast groom who never fails. Now, we definitely won't post this on Facebook, but I failed a lot as a husband over the years. As, as every husband in this room and every wife in this room and every human being has failed Jesus, but he never has. The perfect, faithful, steadfast groom who never fails, Jesus Christ. That's what we're talking about here. And then let's go back to Ephesians chapter 5 and see how this all connects. He says, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Listen, Jesus Christ gave himself up for you. Put your name in there. He loves you and he gave himself up for you. The groom has done that for you. And then it goes on to say, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. The Christ nourishes you spiritually. Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. I'm the one that's going to nourish you. And guess, and hear this part. Please hear this this morning. He cherishes you. It says it right there. I'm not making this up. He cherishes you. You put your name in there. This great this great groom, Jesus the Christ, the one who holds all things together, cherishes, I can't even say the word right, cherishes you. That's good news this morning. Doesn't cherish you if you get it all right. Doesn't cherish you if you say all the right things, do all the right things. He cherishes you because he loves you. And he's the groom who has given it all up so that you and I could have that kind of intimate relationship with you, with him. And it says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. The mystery is profound, and I am saying that it re refers to Christ and the church. We're united with Christ. His banner over us, from, from Solomon chapter 2, his banner over us is love. 
and we are united with him. And one of the things that struck me so much this week was when you think of the part of the passage where it talks about how the, how the groom traveled over all the mountains and came from such a long distance in order to be with the bride and to look through and to see her in the castle, if you want to put it like that, and to invite her to come away with him. That was Jesus Christ who came all the way from heaven from the perfect place of no sin and no struggle and no trial and no death. And he comes down to the earth as a baby. He traveled a long, long way over way more mountains than in the book of Song of Solomon. He traveled a long, long way so that you and I could be reunited with him in a way that is so much more profound than any human relationship. He traveled all that way take on your sin and my sin every one of them every unknown sin every known sin every public sin he took all of them on himself that's pretty intimate and then he gave us back everything that he has all of his righteousness all of his goodness everything that he think about that for a second everything that christ has he poured back into you and me And then he filled us with his spirit. And then he said, you can come and live with me in my presence forever. That's pretty intimate. That's pretty amazing. That's really good news. The one who has created us gave his life so that we might have forgiveness of our sins. He granted us eternal life. And he now lives in us through his Holy Spirit. That's pretty intimate. And if you don't know him in this way, I want to invite you today to know him in this way. I want to invite you today to come to faith in Christ. And if you do know Jesus, I want to invite you to grow in your delight and your relationship with him. I want to pray that this week you would focus on the delight part of our delight, declare, and display. And what does it mean to truly delight in the groom, to delight in the one who has come from heaven to be united with you and I forever and ever. We are to delight in the feeling of being close and emotionally connected and supported, being able to share a whole range of thoughts and feelings and experiences that we have as human beings with our creator and our savior, Jesus Christ. I invite you to that. He wants to have this kind of relationship with you. And he's just waiting on you. He's right there. He's done everything that he can do. Now it's up to you.